my dad was uh, he's a great man um, missed him a, a lot um, they say I look like him my uh, all my family members you know find it a little astonishing but uh, and I take that as a compliment because <laughs> uh, he was um, socially liked by everybody it seems this is Ray Barrows, the son of Raymond Barrows, the only survivor of the shootings on August 1st, 1980. Bear with me a little on the audio. Initially, we had a bad connection, but it does get better. I cleaned it up as best I could. Um, he was, uh, his job required it almost, and maybe that's why he was such a great, uh, great at his job. He was a bell captain at the Kitaskin Hotel. When he was a young man, he wanted to join the uh, the Navy, just like his father. And the reason my father was born in Cuba was because his father, Raymond John Barrows, who I'm named after, was stationed in Cuba in the Navy. A little background information, my, my grandfather, he was... Uh, born in Lynn, Massachusetts in 1898. And you can trace our ancestry, the Barrow's name, all the way back to the Mayflower days. Mm. Um, maybe not quite 1621, but like 1637. So it was New England connection there. And uh, he graduated MIT in 1918. Um, at the age of 20. So, from what I understand, he was a brilliant man and he immediately joined the Navy and was stationed throughout the, the Caribbean. So my aunt was born in Cuba. My uncle Bill was, um, my, un my grandfather was transferred to Venezuela to work on the oil refineries. And he went, uh, and my uncle was born off the Navy base there in and then he got transferred back to Cuba. So my aunt was born in 1921. He based it by about three years. There was, uh, my uncle Bill was born in 1924, and then my dad was born in 1927 off of uh, Gitmo, uh, Guantanamo base, a little province called San Germán, St. German. Uh, he was the baby of the family, so they called him Hispanic baby. You know, the Spanish way of, I guess, the same baby. Right. Mm -hmm. was the baby of the family. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, he did mention in one of the interviews about his uh, father being at Guantanamo. That was one of the things. The history part of it, and because I did get into that in one of the interviews, was fascinating to me, too. That's It's amazing. And so you said they did have family in Boston, um, Massachusetts? Correct. Okay. Did your father ever live in Massachusetts or... Um, even visit there? Did he have family members that he that were there? Not that I know of. Um, let me ask you about your Uncle Juan. What do you remember about him and his personality? He was um, a very nice man, very social man. He was a little kind of like by the book. Um, you know, I just remember him like, you know, I, I guess, you know, anytime. Playing as kids, you know, one of the kids 
was not doing something, I'd always like tell my uncle, and he like cracked the whip, whip, <laughs> cracked the whip on his on his youngest kids, you know. <laughs> but we'd always have so much fun. He had a he when we first started visiting. I remember my visits with my uncle. He would live in a house with a uh, carport in the middle of Tampa uh, suburb, and as his practice grew. Uh, they moved to Tampa Bay. They built the house out there. And uh, I can't remember if he always had that boat. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure if it's the same boat or if he had purchased a separate boat. But we would always go and rent um, a motel uh, called Wit and Motel on Anna Maria Beach. And that was every year growing up as a kid. And... You know, my cousin Juan, my cousin Anna Maria, um, they were both more or less my sisters and my age. Juan was kind of in between. Uh, Juan Jr. was kind of in between my sister and I, but uh, and Anna Maria was just a little bit younger than my sister. But uh, we more or less, you know, grew up with them. And then along came Eric and Mark uh, down, the, down the pike and... That was more when they were actually in Tampa Bay, I believe. And um, we used to go there on the summer. We we go water skiing. I remember water skiing with Juani. We call little Juan Juani. And uh, now that he's a doctor and a pediatrician in St. Petersburg, we call him Juan and call him little Juani. <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> right. So you, you're in healthcare, and so is he then. Yes. Hmm. I was uh, I was a pre-med at the time at the University of Miami, which is uh, really not conducive to studying. That's why they call it by the nickname of Suntan U. And so I fell into that Suntan U lifestyle. So my first semester was a complete flub. I had to drop all my classes. And so once I got back on the page, you know, it was, chemistry was always my undoing but I still graduated with a major in chemistry and a minor in biology um, my plan was to be a pediatrician just like my uncle or a role model in life and when this tragedy occurred it, my mind kind of got derailed so, so it did have a, a big impact on you even you weren't there but the, this had a Sounds like a, a major impact on your life. It did. I, this is the closest family member that I have. So I had a uh, stronger affinity toward my uncle and my aunt in Tampa just because of all the fun things that we did. Ray said that the families were so close when they were young. They spent many summers together in August when school was out. We go up there and, and uh, we go to their house, stay at their house, at my uncle's house. Um, the garage was probably one of the first houses I saw was like a two-door garage, two-car garage. And he had his boat parked on the on the bay, you know. I don't know what he would do. With, oh, he was probably docked at the marina if, if a big hurricane was coming through. But um, he had a pool in the backyard, a built-in pool. And we go to my aunt and uncle's bedroom 
and we get water we get balloons and fill them up with water and then our our cousins Mark and Eric would be playing in the pool and we would like bombard <laughs> them with water balloons so those those are fond memories growing up that I had of them I was very close with um, my cousins as well so your relationship with them sounds a lot like mine was with my cousins it sounds like you guys did boating activities and water activities a lot growing up here in Florida. We did too. So I can really relate to that. So it's interesting to hear that you guys went regularly to Anna Maria Island to um, vacation. It was an area they were comfortable and familiar with. On this particular vacation, you and the and the doctor's son had not gone on that trip. Is that because both of you were in school? Um, for him... He was, um, I believe, already started in college, um, but he was having a summer break, and so he was doing an internship at his uh, father's office, from what I believe. And myself, I would have been there with my, I was, I did do some summer school, but I don't believe that that summer I did anything. But here's what happened. In 1979, when we were out with them and we spent the summer, when we got home to Miami, our house had been burglarized. So my mom was kind of upset about that. I don't know what was, I don't remember what was taken or how big of a theft my sister would probably be a better resource on, on those specifics. That incident was a whole year prior to, to the um, the murders? Correct. So what happened is, um, at this point in my life, I had my first car, or second car, something like that. But I was driving at this point. So this is the first time that I actually drove to to my uncle's house with my cousin Carlos in the summer of 1980. And so we went up and spent like one or two weeks, I believe it was two weeks, and it was sometime in July. And my cousin was also like my sister's age, so he either just graduated high school or so he was like on his summer vacation. So he, uh, him and I went up, we had a great time, spent two weeks there, came back home. When I remember my mother saying, hey, my brother, uh, Juan, had, had gotten a condo given to him at the timeshare of one of the people that lived, that worked with him at his job. And and we're gonna go spend the whole week there, like Monday through Friday. And I said, oh my God, that's gonna be so much fun. That is so great. And my mom says to me, you're not going. <laughs> and I said, what? What do you mean I'm not going? He goes, yeah. Our house was burglarized last time we went. You're going to stay here and you're going to guard the house. I said, that's not fair. She goes, what's not fair? You were just there for two weeks. You spent two weeks with it. And I said, oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> so I stayed there. And then, you know, this is one of those things in my mind that, you know, what if I was there? Well, two things could have happened. Number one. 
could I have prevented this whole thing from happening because there was no room in the car for this hitchhiker? And my uncle would have said, no, sorry, we're too full up here. He was, he wouldn't have let him in the front seat, I don't think. I don't know. These are things, these are questions that you can ask the year after, the day after, 40 years after. Or would I have been one of the victims? Would I have been one of the ones that not made it out of there? Would I have died there that day? So those are things that kind of, uh, you know, I was think I was thinking at the time, and I don't think about them usually on a daily basis. But you know, I do relay the story to people about how this has affected me and how it has shaped my who I am and why I'm. I use it in my nursing. Um, all the things that have happened to me, uh, I use it to help others. So I, um, I was, ironically, I mean, again, I was your typical 20-year-old college student, and I had a friend, and my friend invited me to go out with him since I was there at the house, and he, he wanted to go to Fort Lauderdale. And so we wanted to check out the uh, the nightclub scene because, after all, it was the late 70s, early 80s, and the disco theme was there. Not that I was a big disco fan, but, you know, I like to go to those, those nightclubs. I was always social. He had his own condominium at the Fountain Blue, which was about a half mile or a mile away from my my, my family home. And so... I went out with him to Fort Lauderdale, and ironically enough, his name was Mark, like my cousin Mark, and we were there with his brother, who was ironically named Eric, like my cousin. Mm. So I, I was out with a Mark and an Eric as this was all unfolding. Do you, do you remember when you first found out what happened, how you were notified? Yes. So... What happened is I was, we drank a little bit, probably too much. Um, I think Eric's, um, bro, Mark's brother, Eric, was kind of like the designated driver. He has, he was younger, he didn't drink. And so we, Mark and I had a couple drinks and then we ended up back at Mark's apartment and my car was parked out there. And then I kind of, laid down on his couch and the next thing I knew it was like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning I said man I'm glad I didn't drive and so I got in my car and went home as I got home the phone was ringing and my future brother-in-law Peter told me hey man your dad and your uncle they were shot last night and we have to get we have to get over uh, there to, to to the hospital to see your dad. And I'm like, okay, Peter, I was still was like a little, you know, not cognitively totally there, but I understood what he was saying. And, and we went ahead and we drove up to Holmes Beach. Mm -hmm. So um, all I remember is like going, and when I got to the hospital, I saw uh, my uncle, um, I saw my dad, room I saw some police officers standing outside of it and then I as soon as I walked in to his room 
and I saw the smile on his face, I knew that everything was going to be okay. God. How long, so this was, the incident happened on the 1st, was it the same day or the next day that you guys got there? I got there on October the, on August the 2nd. Okay. When you got there on that day, police were already there and they were guarding him, right? Yes. Yeah. You know what I find ironic, though, Jenny, Mm. is that even though there was police there and they were guarding him and he was the only eyewitness to the whole thing, there was an article in in their local paper there that gave details as to he lived at 2431 Southwest 84th Avenue. We don't live there anymore, but... At the time, if there, if I was a killer and I was reading about my stuff to see what I what I got away with or what I can cover up, mm-hmm. wouldn't I want to get rid of the only eyewitness somehow? So they gave his home address in Miami, zip code and all, which I thought was totally stupid. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's egregious. I, I they did mention that he actually asked in. I've got a, a long transcript of his one of his first interviews and he asked that at the end of the interview why did they do that and the police didn't it was the media that did it you know I don't know what they were thinking it was ridiculous they also printed pictures of some of the witnesses that you know eyewitnesses in the newspaper like those people would have been scared to say anything too if you're putting pictures of people's faces all over the news the media did not handle this situation well I totally agree with you there well and then you look at it in the reality of things like they hadn't had a murder in that Holmes Beach area for over um, 20 years, which doesn't seem like a long time, but it is, mm-hmm. I guess. And mm-hmm. well, the way crime is from the 80s on forward or even the mid 70s, even the 70s, you know, you start hearing about all these you know, I don't think they coined the term serial killer until like 1975 or something like that. So. Right. Yeah. This this sleepy little town was not prepared, certainly, for what, um, you know, unfolded, especially you had two crime scenes, active crime scenes. They, they didn't couldn't didn't even put them together right away. It was a lot that happened. There was a lot. Um, so I looked at the pictures for mm-hmm. the first time today. Uh-huh. We're talking 40 years. I have not. All I've heard is that there's conspiracy theories left mm-hmm. and right. And, you know, like my dad and my uncle were part of a cocaine ring or something Mm. so you know these are things that i put i don't even believe now as a as a grown adult man that i you know i knew i didn't i wouldn't have believed them then and i don't believe them now but now could there be something else behind the scenes sure anything is possible um could at first, I would always say maybe it was a disgruntled patient, you know, that, I don't know. You know, I'm, I certainly am not in any position where I think, oh, I can figure this out because better, you know, minds than myself have done that. I just like the research portion of it. And so that's why I like to, you know, try to reach out to family members and ask questions and, you know, see what they remember. Because sometimes, like you were talking about the uh, the the conspiracies around this, and I've got a couple questions related to that. I tend to, though, I'll tell you ahead of time, agree with you. I went into this thinking, you've got someone who staged a car, took a bike out of that car, rode it to another scene, 
uh, implemented a ruse to get into the vehicle with four people, two of which were children, shot all of them, and then got out of the car, drove that that bike to another scene and was able to get away on its face. You think, Oh, th this, this was, this was specific to someone in that car. But after reading all of it, I'm, I'm almost leaning towards someone that might've been a serial killer, that this was a, you know, something that they planned, but not necessarily that you, the, your family were specific victims of a personal cause. Um, it was just a, uh, maybe an opportunity now that's just sort of what i'm feeling at the time but i will ask you I'll, I'll we'll get into that in a second let me see where i was on these questions because it, it is fascinating that you know all these years later they're no closer to any answers and that tells me that that's because there were no threads between the victims and the perpetrator that seems to me like that's why because there were no links you know cases where there's no link between the perpetrator and the victim are the hardest cases to solve. And so it makes sense to me if they, were, they never found any links to what was going on with anything with your father or, or the doctor. Clearly the kids weren't the targets. I mean, come on. So, you know, it makes me feel like it was probably a, a random choice in victims. Um, let me ask you, this tragedy, did your families talk about it after, or were you the type of family that you didn't talk about it? Like afterwards, were you guys batting ideas back and forth? Was it something that was brought up at the dinner table, or was it one of those, we don't talk about it? Uh, from what I recall, it was probably one of those, we don't talk about it. And that, you know, my mom said that my dad would wake up with like nightmares and yeah. that couldn't have been good for his heart. Mm -hmm. um, back in 1980, 81, they knew what cholesterol was, but they didn't really treat it. The statins haven't, hadn't come out yet. Um, yes, my dad um, enjoyed some physical activity. Him and I used to go on long bike rides together. He had a bicycle, I had a bicycle. We had it in the shed, in our back shed. And um, my sister would join us a lot of times, too. Um, my dad was the bell captain at Key Biscayne Hotel for all those years. Now, if he had contacts out there, here's how his day would go. Mm -hmm. He would leave our house probably before we left for school, I would think, or around the time that we'd leave for school. And he would go down Coral Way and he'd go all the way down into past Miracle Mile into Coral Gables. He would go to the lawn, to the dry cleaner there. He would go to the post office there. He would pick up postage, put mail for the hotel, Key Biscayne Hotel, even though I think Key Biscayne Hotel had their own post office as well, I think. And he would go to get the guests that he dropped off their dry cleaning and pick it up. Oh, wow. He would go and go to uh, to the Rickenbacker Causeway. He'd cross it over it. At the at the early stages of the game, there was a zoo there. Crandon Park uh, Beach was also the, the zoo until they moved it to the mainland and it became the Miami Metro Zoo. We spent a lot of summers on that on that island, Key Biscayne. My sister and I learned how to swim there and at an adjacent um, hotel, because he knew the, the swim instructor over there. 
at the Key Biscayne Hotel, there was not a per se swimming instructor, but there was a dive instructor, Joe something or another. And Joe taught my sister and I to dive. So we learned how to do formal diving. And that was fun. And there was a tennis pro that I liked tennis, but I never really took tennis lessons. If not, who knows? I might be another Nadal. You never know. (laughs) But I did play against and took some tips from the golf pro. And I used to like to banter the ball around in, in our yards. I never went to an actual golf course. Didn't feel like we were rich enough or whatever. <laughs> mm. But yet I had the Key Biscayne Hotel golf course at my disposal. So I, I played with the, uh, the the pro out there. And I almost beat him on the first time. I uh, I almost got a hole-in-one on the 18th hole. My mm. ball hit the, uh, the metal pole. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is. And it sounds like you guys got to, you know, you say, well, we, I didn't feel, you know, wealthy enough or whatever to do that with the golfing thing. But it sounds like you got to do a lot of activities that a lot of people didn't. Did he? So he, you guys spent a lot of time out there. Um, what other, what were can some I, of his... Can I tell you two other things oh, that yeah. he would do? Please, yes. Okay. He, he would charter boats for people that wanted to go out with the charter boats that was at the marina there so on his way he did that during the course of his day but but he would always go after work the fish he had a close relationship with a lot of the fishing captains and the the fishing captains would give him fish almost like every day or every other day or at least once a week so um so we had a lot of Good fish eating growing up. And the other part was that his cousin um, was in the office right before you walk into the hotel. So right before you open the front door to the hotel, on the left-hand side was his bell stand. But before you walked into that door, there was a little Avis rent-a-car closet, let's call it. It wasn't a closet, but it was like a, a long room, and that, that's where you had the keys hanging up where the Avis cars were. And his cousin ran that Avis rent-a-car for the hotel. So his cousin would always give him, his cousin's name was Celine, that's all I remember his name, uh, Porto Wando. And he uh, would give my dad a, a car, and he, could, he would always have a different car every week, weekend sometimes with a convertible and then we drive around with on the convertible go to miami beach or whatever for a drive so it's kind of fun yeah it does it sounds great it would be it it would be neat to have someone that worked at a in a position especially for that many years as many years as your father did that means he was very good at his job clearly um it it would be neat to have the reason i bring that up though is just because you know now 40 years later you know um, you know, you have to think these things because you live in today's society and you're like, now you start pondering in your mind, you know, did he have any kind of connection with these fishing captains? Right. I don't think so. I think it was all legitimate business. I don't think there was like any drug smuggling or anything like that. Or, you know, did cocaine cowboys stay at the hotel? I just remember that that was President Nixon's getaway uh, hotel and that my dad picked up 
the president's wife at the airport because nobody can get to her. How do you? How can you not have a ex-president's wife with no security detail? Like, and how can my father, a lonely bell captain, pick her up at the hotel that he was entrusted with that kind of responsibility? Right. And she gave him some some crisp one dollar bills fresh off the print, which he saved in this little lockbox <sighs> up in the attic. Oh. Well, tell me, so you're you're saying, okay, I'm pondering these things that my dad, uh, you know, may have encountered during his job. What, what was, he would set up, he would go down and, and speak to these, the, these captains, you said, to set up charters for guests. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. So these are fishing charters? Correct. Okay. Um, he also, you know, whenever like the Orange Bowl came around every year, he would get tickets and buy tickets for guests. You know, people come for the Orange Bowl. They want to stay at a nice place. They stay at, at the Key Biscayne Hotel. And, you know, they go to the Orange Bowl. They go to watch whatever college uh, teams are playing in the Orange Bowl that year. So he would always get tickets for that. And um, my dad also was an avid um, boxing fan. He loved the the boxers of old, the Sonny Listons, the, you know. And he took me to boxing matches in the Miami Beach. I don't remember him ever saying something, oh man, I lost money on that. I don't think he ever bet. He just loved the sport and he had books on that. He was also into Charles Atlas or whatever his name was that would work out. Mm -hmm. um, um, so he had his, his books and my dad had like at the age of like his early 30s when he married my mom, he had like a real cut physique. But that's... Um, I'm just trying to give you the full picture. No, I love it. I appreciate every little detail because, okay. uh, you know, we don't, I'm a writer. I want to hear it all. So you don't have to apologize for that. It's fascinating, the world that your father sort of moved around in. Because that means he was so, I mean, it sounds like it was, you know, a really golden time to be alive and, and, and working and rubbing elbows with different people. Um, so tell me what, if, if you know, I don't know if you know exactly, what would a day at his job look like? So he'd get home after he stopped at those places. What, what how would, um, like, guests encounter him? What would they, what would, I mean, he would, sounds like he would meet any of their needs. Correct. Did he get them hookers? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> no. uh, this, this is the first time I'm actually even thinking about this. Yeah. But. And that's why I kind of make a joke about it. Yeah. So but, is he standing, is he literally standing outside when guests drive up and then and then ushering them in to check in? Is that what he's doing or uh, is he called? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, he, he's, he had a stand. Okay. He had a bell stand. And so as soon as they walked in, he was the first face that people would see. And so there was plenty of times that I would be doing stuff on one side of the hotel. Um, he, he set us up for lunch every time. We'd always have the big old fat juicy burger with a big old vanilla milkshake, you know, mm -hmm. when my sister and I visited, like, uh, to spend like a day there with him. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, not very often, but like maybe two or three, four or five different occasions, uh, the, the hotel also rented bicycles and we'd go for a bike ride around there. Mm -hmm. My sister got hit by a car one time and Ooh. he immediately uh, got there and took her to the local doctor to be just checked out and she was all right but again he was always there he was a great father 
I love and miss him dearly. And I am so glad that I've had the opportunity to be like him in the respect that I'm serving people and that I have a son and a daughter the way that he did um, in that order. Mine are three years apart, but me and my sister are only two years apart. That's the only difference. But I've got to follow in his footsteps in that regard. When he, after he recovered, and you're, you don't think it was all that long, he went right back to work? He did. Within about, I think, what I want to say is like two weeks. Um, my mom, like I said, after the fact, after he died, said that he would wake up with nightmares. And I'm like, well, why didn't he get counseling? Why didn't he, you know, why didn't he talk to his doctor about anxiety or yeah, I don't think they did stuff like that back then. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that was you know, especially a man. I don't. I don't think that in 1980 that was something that. Especially a Cuban man. I don't know. They're very stoic. Yeah, yeah. So, his job alone and his duties. Would you say he was someone that, for example, would have a good attention to detail? First of all. Oh yes. Okay. And he came in contact with, it seems, people from all over the country, right? They're vacationing. It's a high-end place. So Correct. the thing that interests me, one of the one of the things that stands out about the, the perpetrator is your father describing him as having a New England accent, right? Do you believe, knowing your father, that if he said New England accent, he was specifically talking about what would you say he was talking about state-wise? I would say that he's talking about you know, uh, Massachusetts, uh, New York, uh, New Hampshire, Maine, all the all the New England states. Because, like I said, he encountered people from every state just in his, in his job. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, here he would probably encounter people that were international too. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he could speak Spanish as well was a big plus on for his job as it is for mine. Right. Yeah. So, I was, the thing is, the thing about when, when, so what, what you did just is exactly kind of what, when they asked him about it. So when they asked him the accent, he brought up the accent first, by the way, because they basically, the question they asked him was, do you think this person was educated or not educated based on the way they talked? And he said, educated. And so they said, they prompted him, well, why? And he said, um, well, the words he used, his accent. And they said, okay, what was the accent? And he said, I would say New England. And then one of the officers jumped in and said, what, like New York or New Jersey? And he said, well, New York, New Jersey, Boston, Massachusetts. And I don't think any of those three accents are the same. I, I've uh, known people from all three, and all three are different to me. So uh, that's why I was trying to sort of suss out if you think he would differentiate between, let's say, New York and um, New Hampshire or Massachusetts. But you're not you, you think he might just lump them all in together? I would think that's what he did. Okay. Is lump them together. I don't think... Like, I don't know if he would have, like, like I had some fraternity brothers that were, one was from New Jersey, so I would just say that he had a New England accent. I wouldn't say he had a New Jersey accent. Okay. You, know? you from Jersey? I'm from Jersey. Right. I, well, that helps because I was really trying to get into the weeds on the whole accent thing, and but I, it may be that from his perspective, those all are sort of, a, you know, sound alike, so that... Um, that does answer something for me. Now, did police come and interview you? They did not. They never spoke to you? The police? No, oh. they spoke to my mom. 
they followed up with her and they said that we still have this case and we're still working on it and so your father i want to talk about that composite drawing um it seemed to me reading all the articles um that he wasn't since you're on track with that can i tell you a few things that i've read yeah okay so here's the way i understood the story to be they were on the road to the after they had Dr. Boat, <clears throat> he had come up to my dad's side of the car. It says he popped his head in the window. I don't remember that part, but if my dad said he did, then he popped his head in the window. I don't remember that part, but he went up to my dad's side of the car and asked, hey, I, uh, I was riding my bike here and I sprained my ankle. I live in a condo a half mile up the road. Can you give me a, you guys might give me a ride up there. Um, and then my dad said, it's not my car. Um, it's my brother-in-law's. You would have to ask him. So he went to the other side, asked my uncle, and my uncle, being a good Samaritan, said yes. It says that he put, he grabbed his bike and he put it in this in the, in the boat. From what I understand, my dad and my uncle both got out of the car. My dad and him picked up the bike between the two of them, and the guy didn't have to leave any fingerprints this way. And then my dad opened the back door. To, for, I'm not sure if it was the drivers or the passengers. Whatever side they were on, I would assume it was maybe... I, all this time I thought it was the passengers. It might have been the driver's side where he got in on. Um, I don't know where they found the bodies of Mark or Eric. I don't know what side of the car they sat on. I don't know any of that stuff. Well, I can give um, you some more details about that. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, and, go ahead, and then I'll... I'll... Because some of this then, is not correct, but go ahead and, I'll, and then I'll. And then, it, and then it says on the on what I what I read this morning, um, just for the first time in forty years, was that my uncle was shot first. My dad, from what I remember of the story, my dad says that he got shot first because he remembers his head going forward, and then the side of his eye, he saw my uncle turning around and putting his arms in the air and saying, "Please, please, don't shoot the children." And then he shot my uh, uncle twice in the head, and then he took the gun and put one bullet in each one of the boys' heads. So that's that's the story that I remember that I got. So that if you, it's any different, I yes, would like to know. Yes, it is. So so that's the story you got from your dad or that you read? Or is it a that's mixture of I, the two? That's, that's, that's what I remember from, from my dad. Okay. That's what I remember. Okay, so... Um, Basically, the reports, the police reports say that the the person did approach on your father's side, on the passenger side. He wasn't sure if the window was rolled down or up at the time, but he approached. And I don't think he said he popped his head in the window. I think the way he worded it was he, you know, his head appeared in the window. So it sounds like he leaned down um, and he, he asked, he said, um, I, I'd like to get a ride could you give me a ride? I've hurt my ankle. And he didn't say he lived in a condo. He pointed up. He just pointed and said, up there. And the doctor said, um, to where exactly? Do you have an address? And the guy said, no, just up there. And it sounds like he was pointing where his car was parked, to be honest. Um, but he, yeah. was saying up to, he was saying up to the condominiums. So they said, sure. Both men got out of the car. Um, your father offered, he said, in his interview, to help him put the boat the the bike in the boat but he said no I'll get it but then he walked around to the doctor's side the driver's side rear um which I thought I don't understand why he did that why he wouldn't have just put it in the passenger side 
Um, that's a question that I don't, we'll never know. So he walked around to the other side after refusing to, or, you know, saying, no, I've got it. And then by the time your dad got around, the doctor was, they were both lifting it in together. And then um, he engaged your uncle in a little bit more discussion. He said, is, are you sure it's okay back there? Is it going to hurt anything? And the doctor said, no, it's fine. And then he walked back around the other side. And, he, and your father said he walked in front of him. And um, he wasn't sure why he walked in front of him. I'm wondering, was he going to get in the front seat or not? Um, but your father reached out and opened the door for him. And so, yes, he wouldn't have had his hands on the outside of the passenger side door. But your dad opened the door for him, and he got in. The boy scooted over, and then they got into the car. Now, um, there was nothing in anything about don't shoot the boys, raising your hand, none of that. He says they pulled out. He said in one interview there was no discussion at all, and then the incident occurred. And in all the things that I've read, your father was absolutely shot first. I don't know whether the boys were shot before or after the doctor, but I do know that the doctor was literally seen by witnesses, turned around in his seat with his bare back against the windshield or the glass fighting off the killer and the after the doctor was shot um and he was shot twice the witnesses saw an arm from the back seat reach and grab the steering wheel and that's when it went off the road and jackknifed so um the order would definitely be that your father was shot first um he doesn't he went he didn't remember a lot of what was going on other than his other than one um yelling not specific words just screaming and um he didn't say anything about the children at all in the interviews that i read at all but there may have been subsequent ones that i didn't read where his memory came out the one i've got is the i think on the fifth that they did august 5th so it's a very long interview done by one of the state attorney um, investigators um so anything that i did not say um, that you did say is something that came out after. But there was one thing that I noticed in one of the articles that I wanted to ask you if he told you. Um, this was not in the interview that he said, but he said um, he told a reporter when he was speaking to them that after they pulled out, the guy got in the car and they pulled out, there was a moment when the doctor says to him in Spanish, did you notice he doesn't have a limp or something like that? And that's when the shooting started. But that's not in any of the uh, reports that I have. But again, I, there's probably more. Had you heard that story that they talked to each other in Spanish about the limp? Okay, so I don't know. that. I believe that came from an interview with your father. And it's possible that some of these memories are uh, were coming you know, slowly to him. Because like he said, he sort of feels like he blacked out. Now, one of the witnesses that approached the car said he was not, he was awake, but I don't think he, he, he didn't look like he could, you know, turn, you know, he, he described not being able to turn his head. I think he was clearly in shock and I don't think he remembers, you know, the whole timeline of events while he was in the car. At least he didn't while he was speaking to the press in the beginning. Now, those things may have come back to him later, you know. So tell me again what you said he said about the putting his hands up and don't shut, hurt the kids? He said he said that? Or the doctor? The doctor. Oh, that may have happened then. That may that may have happened. That may have happened. At the same time, I, I was reading this thing, I think it was from 1999. It was by a June Alder, who's a, 
um, a reporter for the Islander mm-hmm. uh, from Anna Maria Island, and then on on there she writes, you know, um, shows pictures of you know all the bystanders, how the crime scene was open, anybody just can come in. Um, paramedics were there, bystanders were helping out, a nurse shows my uncle I think on the gurney mm-hmm. although he looks like a little bit chubbier like it would be my dad but I can see my dad sitting up and and they're tending to him and he has like black shorts on they said that my uncle had red and white shorts on so this looks more like it would be my uncle your uncle only had his bathing suit on he didn't even have a shirt on and your father had the red shorts and a white shirt I believe the, everyone was dressed in shorts and a shirt, but your uncle. I think he had just left his clothes in the boat and just they, you know, they just been in the water. They just uh, yeah, this guy, yeah. This guy is laying on the gurney, doesn't have anything but a bathing suit. On. That's your so uncle, that's then. Uncle. Yeah, yeah. Um, they did also say so when when the perpetrator was seen by a couple of witnesses and everyone saw sort of piecemeal. Um, a couple of people saw the back. It was the back driver's side door fly open because the way it was jackknifed around the tree, um, your father actually mentioned in the interview that he saw the boat out his window because it was actually, they were now next to each other. You know, it, it, it cur- curled around the, the car and the boat were parallel at that point, basically, around the tree. So um, he couldn't have, the perpetrator couldn't have gotten out on that side. Unfortunately, he walked, he climbed over the boys to get out and... Um, and opened the, he would have had to have touched the inside driver's back seat door because that's how he got out. So if he touched anything, he would have touched that and maybe the inside of the back passenger door um, on the right side behind your dad if he closed it. But I'm not sure if your dad closed it for him from the outside or he closed it. So they would have been able to get prints from the, the driver's side passenger door on the inside and then, because the door was left open, and then the steering wheel, presumably, but you have to remember, just because they he touched something doesn't mean that a good print was laid, and they do have prints, un, un, um, unknown prints, but they I think they've got a lot of them, because there were, unfortunately, so many people at the scene so quickly, and prints were laying on top of prints, over top, you know, so I think it was a kind of a difficult crime scene to... Uh, process because of that and the sprinklers came on right there but um when the uh, so everything was getting wet and and some of these bystanders were trying to throw their shirts over top of them to stop them from spraying everything the car was still running when it jackknifed so it was sputtering up dirt all in the air it was just kind of a, a big perfect storm of a mess from a perspective of you know collecting evidence i think unfortunately um well, that report that I was reading to you, that when they write talk about the details, I'm just I was just confused because it says um, that the uh, station wagon had gone only a few yards when the man pulled out a gun. Mm-hmm. He shot du- he shot Dumois, then Barrows, then the boys. Yeah, that's, that's what the recorder says. Right, they got a, quite a few things wrong in the in the newspapers. I noticed they you know it's difficult to go and assess them. Um, by just newspaper clippings because of that fact. Um, they, I, your father for sure was shot first. And that from a, this, per, you know, the perpetrator's perspective, your father would have been the, the one you would probably want to shoot first, not because he was a target, but because your, the, your uncle was driving. He's 
preoccupied with trying to safely drive the car. Your uncle would have been the easiest one to fight back. So, of course, he would be the first one from the perpetrator's perspective. The children certainly weren't any um, danger to the perpetrator. So it would have been the men, you know. But I don't know if they shot the children, the doctor or the children first. I just don't know. He was certainly fighting for his children's lives. And he and he neutralized the your father, the one person that could have, you know, fought him first. That that's what happened and your father it seems like however he was hit he couldn't move he couldn't turn and he, what he remembered was a, 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 a loud sound and feeling something and then seeing blood on your uncle's back which I don't know if it was your uncle's blood or if it was the child's behind him you know it's hard to tell unfortunately it's hard to but I think the police believed that it was the your father I know that your father was first I believe that the police think that it was um in the men first so i you know um the next part it says the man turned off the ignition steered the car to the side of the road and then to road and then rode his bike toward foodway no none, none of that about, <laughs> and then they write about retired air force lieutenant colonel mm -hmm. robert Matsky working in the yard yeah i heard he was washing his car but he was actually so he was a transportation um, guy from the Manatee County um, school system, I think, bus transportation he worked in, and and that he lived in that the condominium um, complex, which was kind of right behind where the the vehicle came to rest. He was out front working with the um, sprinkler system. He also worked, you know, did some handyman stuff around the condos. So he was actually out there when it when it crashed, and he saw the perpetrator jump out of the car now we don't know exactly what he saw he probably didn't wasn't aware of the shooting part maybe he heard it maybe the shootings maybe he didn't but what from his perspective most certainly he saw was this man running around grab his bike and then leave and being a colonel i'm think he's probably thinking why is this person leaving this scene of this crime this accident this whatever so he jumped in his fiat and followed him that's when he shot him. So. Right, right. That that's that's what happened there. Yes, um, and I so reached out to that family to thank him. You know, well, number one for his service, and number two, sorry that he reacted the way he reacted, but I'm sorry he had to lose his life. I don't know. If that's something that you reach out to somebody's family to say thank you for letting him die. Yeah. Well, what's right and what's wrong? Yeah, I don't think that there's a right and wrong. I mean, I if am. you're asking my opinion, I I don't. I am. Yeah, I don't think that there's a right and wrong. I think um, you are all victims, all of you. Victims are not just the people that are killed. Victims are the people who are left in the aftermath. So you're all you are all um, you know. You are all impacted in various ways by this. and It's hard to know what to say in moments like this, and I never feel equal to the task. I did learn from a Bradenton Herald article on the one-year anniversary of the homicides that someone from the Dumois family did reach out to Mary Matsky. Ms. Matsky said she received an outpouring of sympathy in the days and months after the tragedy, but this was one of the more meaningful exchanges. The Dumois family member had assured her that she was in their prayers, and her heart went out to them as well, so much so that she was compelled to visit Maria Dumois. 
After all, Mrs. Matsky told a reporter, she'd lost not only a husband, but two sons as well. So the women met, and Maria Dumois told Mary Matsky that their vacation to the island that week had been the best they'd ever had together, at least up until that terrible afternoon. The article says that the women stayed in touch after that encounter. Mrs. Matsky seems like a lovely woman. She even said that she harbored no malice toward her husband's killer. I only feel pity, she said. It's on his conscience, if he's still alive, that is. I'm not angry. He had a target. Bob just got in the way. The colonel's widow also had a few words about Holmes Beach Police Chief Tom Shanafelt. I can't say enough about all he's done, she said, noting that he had kept in close contact with her. Because an old neighbor from Indianapolis had reached out to Ms. Matsky after the murder of her husband, and they rekindled that friendship, Mrs. Matsky preferred to believe that whatever the tragedy, some good always comes of it. I don't know if everybody can ever get to that place, but I certainly think if you're able to get there, that place where Mrs. Matsky got, it probably is the healthier place to reside. You know, he was a, a colonel, so his initial reaction is probably going to be to help. And everyone that, you know, the the interesting about this is that a lot of the witnesses didn't pay attention to the bicycle, bike rider, the perpetrator, for that reason. They weren't, it didn't immediately occur to them that there were shootings <laughs> happening in the car. Most of them didn't know that there were shootings. Some heard them. Some saw, you know, bangs going on in the car. But the, everyone's initial reaction was to run to those victims, run to the children. People could see children in the car. People could see, you know, so one person climbed in the, through the back seat to wrap a shirt around your father's neck because his wound was pumping blood. So a bystander ripped off his shirt and ran. That was the first thing he did because he could see that it was... His shirt, like in the, the, the helper's shirt? Or yes, like in my dad? the helper's shirt, right. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, so let's talk about that composite drawing because your father was, you know, integral in, in putting that together. And it seems to me from when I was reading the initial um, articles and then and then a little bit later on, he wasn't, I mean, he worked with them to put it together, but he was never happy with it until he worked with that private investigator that was hired by um, your aunt. Okay. What do you, what do you know about that composite drawing or remember? All I remember is I saw it, I think, once, and, it, it, and I don't even know where I saw it, but I don't have too much recollection of it. I'm sorry. But. No, no, that's okay. I, I wouldn't have expected you to. I just didn't know what how much he was. See, he seemed to be pleased once he worked with the private investigator, and I was wanting to a little bit drill down on that. Do you remember anything about that private investigator being hired? Sort of. My sister probably has a better recollection on that. And the reason um, why I'm interested is because I read some articles about, and he's deceased now, so I can't ask him. I was thinking about trying to reach out to his wife to see if there's any of those files left. He said in an article in the newspaper that he had someone he thought was a suspect, a local. Um, and I, I, But there's no name, obviously. He didn't put the name in the paper. And there didn't seem to be any love lost between law enforcement and the private investigator. Um, you know, I guess they felt he was, I don't know, infringing on their investigation. Was he an ex-cop or what? I, no, he, he actually, reading his, um, obit, 
I think that he worked at a bank first, and then he became a private investigator. I don't believe he was an ex-cop. That P.I. was Russell Edward Weigel, also known as Dutch Weigel. In his obituary, it says, in the 1960s, he and his parents moved to Ruskin, Florida. He graduated from East Bay High School. He worked in a beachside hotel restaurant during his senior year, of which he always reminded everyone. He loved to cook out on the grill and preparing holiday meals. Russell went to work at a bank in Tampa, Florida, working through different departments, becoming a loan officer at the age of 20. He could make loans, but he could not yet sign the checks because he was not 21. He had to get another officer of the bank to sign the checks. He met his wife at the bank, and they went on to have three sons and a daughter. He then left the bank to become a private detective. He investigated every kind of case, from divorce to capital murder. Russell worked with major law firms throughout Florida and was a special deputy in Hillsborough County, Florida, and with the NAACP in Pinellas County, Florida. He went on to do a lot of investigative work, but I just think that, I think that they were probably touchy about the situation because they didn't have any answers. They didn't, you know, they had one or two early suspects, but none of them I would even consider suspects. They were people that they jumped on quickly because they didn't have anything else to work with. And I think that, you know, that must have been a really tough spot for him. But I know that your father seemed to say, at least if these interviews are right, that once the PI helped him um, under, he went under hypnosis to get um, a better drawing and they put out a color drawing, which in my opinion was important because if you look at the, those black and white images, my impression was that it was a dark, a, a, a Hispanic person because it's black and white images and the hair looks dark and, and that's, that's not the case. The person was lighter skinned and light haired and light. Yeah. Almost like bushy hair, I think. Yeah. But my dad, all I remember is he's, he's, he's saying that he had like like fila type tennis shorts, and he looked like he was presentable, so that he didn't look like he was threatening from that point of view. Almost like a Ted Bundy kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. You, my friend, my new friend mm-hmm. Jenny, you mm-hmm. know. I'm not the only one that's reached out to me. Um, actually, Paula Zahn's team reached out to me. Oh, wow. And they, and they wanted me to talk to my aunt to see if she would be willing to be re-interviewed or to, for us to reopen, for them to reopen the case and look into it. Mm-hmm. So I just reached out to my cousin Juan, and he said that his mom just prefers to, like, you know, not reopen things because it's too painful or something to that effect. Um, after the accident, so before you guys all vacationed together and everything, after the accident, did, were your, did your families not get together as much? Yeah, correct. We went to the funeral, and that was probably the hardest funeral I ever had to attend. It was just like like a heart, like a knife in my heart the whole time. And so... Ugh. Ray and I spoke for just over two hours, and during that time he shared a lot of stories with me, some that were not relevant to the podcast. But what I left our conversation with was a clear understanding of the ripple effect of crimes like homicide, particularly unsolved cases, where family is left with questions that often they live their entire lives without getting answers to. I don't think we talk nearly enough in the true crime space 
about the trauma that secondary victims live with, victims like family and friends that are left to pick up the pieces after a tragedy like this occurs. Entire lives can spiral out of control or take a completely different path than the one that they were set on before the proverbial shots rang out. In some cases, those secondary victims manage to course-correct and find their way back to that path. But in other cases, that person that they were meant to be before the trauma ceases to exist, and that new person is left to live the remainder of their lives in place of that ghost soul who died along with their family member. I am always grateful when a secondary victim trusts me with their stories, because even the personal parts that I can't or choose not to air, I carry with me as a constant reminder of how important it is to give victims the space to tell their stories in whatever way they wish to tell them, even if my role is sometimes just to listen. Uh, there's a website called Web Sleuths. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's um, it's just one of these websites where they we, they talk about true crime, and so you, different cases are discussed. And there's a thread about the about the Kingfish boat ramp murders, and someone purporting to be former law enforcement, I believe FDLE, had mentioned that one of the areas that they were looking into was related to your father having debt in as far as horse racing, and so they apparently they asked your um, cousin about it. But there's only one line about it. It just says, Juan Dumois stated that Barrows allegedly attends horse racing, however, does not believe that this occurs on a regular basis. That's it. So because it was mentioned in this and then also on Web Sleuths, I was wondering, did your father go to horse race races that you knew of? I never heard him go to like horse races. I heard him go to like possibly to the Greyhound uh, dog racing. Huh. I was like in Hialeah, I think, or thereabouts, anyway. There was one dog track that closed right around this time in the nineteen beginning of nineteen eighty down right down in Miami, not far. I thought it said Collins Avenue. I think it said. I don't remember, but I'll have to. So you aren't aware of any of these that he did regularly, as far as that he could be in debt in a situation where murder would be involved, is what you're saying. It doesn't sound like. You're not aware of anything like that? No. I mean, that would have to be some debt to follow the person, you know. And kill their whole family, right? Right. It doesn't, that story doesn't fit for me. It doesn't make sense, you know. It doesn't, if you if he was a target take in that. Guy, you know, take the guy, break his, break right. his legs, crush right. his fingers, the mob. I don't know. It doesn't sound like they would want to take out your whole family. And follow you on vacation to do it. If they wanted to do something, they could have done it. Right. It just doesn't, it's too many leaps for me. It doesn't, and I don't think police ever found anything either. But I, maybe they had, maybe someone they interviewed at work said, oh, well, he goes to horse racing or goes to the dog track now and again, you know, and then that's, maybe, and then it just snowballed. But that's all, that's it. That is the sum total of what I've heard about. It says horse racing on here, but initially I thought maybe it was the dog track. But, you know, and all those types of things have those mob connections. And so I think it just spins out of control into these stories and, because I don't for a minute believe the, the the story that this Tony the Greek guy, this Donald Francos, told about about the 55 kilos of drugs. See, it seems to me like the police went through both of their lives and they literally just couldn't find anything. 
They couldn't find anything with regard to your father. They could any truth to any of those things. They couldn't find anything with regard to um, the doctor. They didn't find. Now I don't know if they looked into. Put Winnie Paws on to put it. Yeah. On time How long ago? <laughs> How long ago did she did she um, contact you? Oh, it was when we lived at the old house. I remember getting the letter over there. I believe. How, I think. How long was that? Five years, something like that. But so I, I guess that means it. if they if they haven't done anything, that means that um, it was because the there was a cooperation maybe with the Dumois family. Correct. Because police have talked about it over the years. You know, they've been willing to, to do these specials. If you go, if you're interested, go on and type that in, Kingfish Boat Rate Murder on YouTube, and you can see all the little articles. The police have, have done these, you know, the, the on the um, anniversary, they'll do, the Islander will do a story, and then they'll talk about all the different things that have occurred. But, um, and so, you know, what I come away with after talking to you, after reading all the, documents and i may not have everything i mean i'm sure fdle has stuff that i don't have and if they did in fact looked into drug stuff basically it sounds to me listening to these newer police chiefs in holmes beach they say yeah there's been a lot of theories but there's nothing to any of these theories that we found we don't have anything and in that case if that's the case it's possible i think it that makes it more possible that what we're looking at is not there is no link to any of the victims and it's a killer that targeted them for reasons unknown. And when the uh, the crime remains obscure, as long as the motive remains unclear. And so that's what we're looking at. We don't even have a motive. We don't know why what was done was done. And maybe the reason why we don't is because there's no link to any person that was a victim that day or family members. And it was in fact a local or someone who was looking for someone to kill on that day. Every time I hear that song, you ever heard the song, Riders of the Storm? Mm-hmm. And that's Jim Morrison. So Jim Morrison said, you know, um, it's like rain falling, and it's like, you know, um, his brain is squirming like a toad. Your sweet family will die, you know, Riders of the Storm. So that, that whole song is personifying for me what happened that day. Hmm, I'll have to go back and listen to it again and listen to the words. It's been a long time since I heard it. So the actual lyric is, there's a killer on the road, his brain is squirming like a toad. Take a long holiday, let your children play. If you give this man a ride, Sweet family will die. Killer on the road. Well, I don't want to. You're on your day off, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But let me ask you this before we go: Is there anything that I didn't ask you, or didn't bring up, or anything that you want to add? Um, because this is your family, and this is your story. It's not mine. Is there anything else that you want to say or add? I think if there was something at all, uh, so my dad said that he wore Phyllis shorts and he was looked like uh, you know a trustworthy guy. Did but, he say Phyllis specifically? Because he I do, in the in the 
in the interview. He said, he said feel it because I heard feel it because my dad would always buy like feel the stuff because I think uh, um, Bjorn George, big tennis player besides McElroe, McEnroe at the time, um, wore that kind of stuff. And so we bought that kind of stuff ourselves. And we wore that kind of stuff ourselves. And he said a tennis outfit. He said a um, white tennis outfit that seemed to have like a the, the collar and, and, and the side of the shorts had like, you know, uh, trim, colored trim. He wasn't sure about what color the trim was. He said maybe red blue but he wasn't sure but he didn't say Fila specifically so you recall him thinking it was like a, a and he, te- he played tennis so he would know what a tennis outfit looked like and you know that's that's another there's a couple things that are interesting to me and let me point them out and see if anything jogs to your memory so he says he, this guy had dark hair he had that tennis outfit on now the first group of witnesses at the crime scene at the first crime scene let's say the the boat and car accident scene yeah. They all described someone with lighter hair. They None of them said dark hair. They all said lighter, blondish. Now, then when we get to the crime scene over at the uh, where, where the perpetrator rode the bike in the foodway parking lot, they all go right. back to the dark hair. I, I wondered, is it possible that this guy put on some disguise in the car to travel from one crime scene to the other or is it just faulty memory because we can, you know, when you're working with witnesses and, and memory, witnesses are like the least... <laughs> reliable types of evidence so True. did did your father ever say anything about a disguise or anything anything like that or any it didn't sound from his clothing description like this guy could have had any anywhere to hide anything i know you know like he said he had pockets but i don't even know where he put the gun i mean right if he had those tight because those feel shorts i've worn them before and they're pretty tight right so could, I mean, from what I understand, it was a twenty-two caliber. Yeah. So can you fit a twenty-two caliber in a sock? I don't know. And I don't know. If I was picking up somebody, I'd probably be eyeing up, up and down. Yeah, the only I'm place gonna... I think he could have it hidden would be like at his back, right? Like that they wouldn't see it. Right. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like what you just said. Like in his back with a shirt covering up over it kind of hiding it Mm-hmm. and that was my and and your dad never saw the gun so and obviously the doctor didn't until it was out so it, it, I, my guess would be that's where it was and there was no other place that i could think of and then, and then my mom had asked me because i we went recently to anna maria um over thanksgiving actually it was more of an excuse not to have to have thanksgiving this year because of covid but we, we took a trip to anna maria because she's always willing to go to crime scenes with me and we took my two sons and we stayed at a place called cedar cove and we we went to the scene and they're so very close but she was saying that um asking well was there any pouch on the bike was there anywhere he could hide it and no nobody described anything on that bike just a regular 10 speed bike and and now that you tell me that you guys rode, you you had ten speeds also, ten speed bikes. Yeah, we both did. So he would be familiar with ten speeds. He would be familiar with uh, with the tennis clothing. He would. There's nothing that would. I mean, he would be someone that would. Right, he would have said he would. He, he would know if it had like a little bag or like on the bike or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. He, he would have picked that up um, because you know I would say that he was a tennis enthusiast i mean we watched you know McElroy play bjorg but be you know again a lot of times um, 
McEnroe used to actually practice at uh, Key Biscayne back when he was a teenage snob hmm. before he became a, a hellion on the courts. That's interesting. Now he's like all mild-mannered and stuff, which I think is pretty cool. You know, people can change. Yeah. That, well, you kind of hope we all do <laughs> over the yeah. years. You know, all of us, we, we could always use room for improvement. I want to thank Ray Barrows for giving me so much of his time. He was very gracious. In the next episode, I'll do my usual season wrap-up, and then I'm going to get into how next season may shape up to be an exploration of crimes that were possibly committed by the same perpetrator. Stay tuned.